number 17 of the Sports Geeky Podcast. My name, as always, is Alex Reamer. Thank you for tuning in and making us a part of your Saturday routine, your weekend routine, your weekly routine. Whenever you listen to us, we never get stale. We're always here. You can find us wherever Out Sports Podcasts can be found. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Yeah, yeah, Joe Rogan may get his $100 million, but guess what? He's just on Spotify. We're everywhere. That's better, right? Take your 100 mil. I'll take the exposure bucks. (laughs) uh, So, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, I think we have a great uh, guest for you today. Uh, Really excited to get to my interview with Chris Johnson. He is the chief White House reporter for the Washington Blade. Uh, Chris is the only uh, member of the White House press corps who works for an LGBT publication had a great talk with chris about what his mission statement is covering the white house every day for an lgbt audience uh his experiences covering the trump white house and everything involved with that uh his thoughts on the daily press briefing which is now back uh with kaylee McEnany, or i don't know if it's daily but they are holding regular press briefings again uh chris had uh, a notable exchange with kaylee a couple weeks ago earlier in may um asking her about her previous opposition to same-sex marriage. And we also talked about a great piece he wrote this week about the death of uh, Larry Kramer and explaining his complex relationship and ultimately friendship with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, of course, has been an omnipresent figure in our lives for these last few months. So that's coming up momentarily. But before we do that, I would be remiss if I just did not say something about uh, what's been going on in Minneapolis these last few days beginning with the murder of George Floyd Monday night, and that's really what it was, a murder. The officer finally charged on Friday. What took so long, who knows? Um, You know, a lot of people are telling on themselves. uh, Notice those who are far more focused on the riots than the murder itself, than the state-sponsored domestic terrorism, than the taxpayer-funded domestic terrorism. I mean, that is the most messed-up thing about this. George Floyd pays the salaries of the Minneapolis police department. And, you know, he gets killed because he's a a suspect in an, in an alleged forgery case. I mean, are you kidding me? Ahmaud Arbery gets killed just jogging in Georgia around a neighborhood. Being born white in this country is like being born in the red zone. It really is. You just need to go 20 yards to score. And it is amazing to me that not all white people realize that. How can you watch a video like we see with Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Trayvon Martin years ago, Freddie Gray, Eric Gardner? I mean, go on down the line. You never see that. You never see a white person in that situation in those kinds of videos. I mean, it's just it's it's and why are people so angry? Because this has been a part of the fabric of our nation, of the world, for hundreds, 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 hundreds of years, and it's still here today in 2020. And you have a guy in the White House who is fart-tweeting about uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Like, that's really... uh, don't, (laughs) Don't worry, everyone. The office will change the man. I mean, how stupid... Do those people sound? All those pundits. Remember, remember, Trump gave his first State of the Union address, and he like didn't he didn't threaten to imprison in political enemies. So you know, Van Jones and everyone on CNN. Then that goes, oh, that's the day that Donald Trump became president of the United States. Mm-hmm. He seems very presidential now, does he not? Um, just uh, a lot of stuff has been said about what white people can do in the aftermath of this uh what can we do you know it's 
I guess I guess just the one thing I'll say is it's something that I try to do in my life and will continue to try to do. It's something I think we can all do is just broaden our social circles a little bit. You know, it's make an effort to be friends with people, to befriend people who don't come from the same background as you. I, I think that's something that should be doable for all of us. And you talk about what can we do to make a difference, broaden our perspective, broaden our friend group. I think that's one thing we can do. Um, but yeah, it's just sad, just a crazy, uh, just sad, just an enraging story, an enraging story. And, uh, it continues. Um, what's also enraging is what happened Thursday, the ruling out of the department of education's office for civil rights ruling that the Connecticut policy allowing trans student athletes to compete in girls sports violates the civil rights of cisgender female athletes. Uh, they said it violates their Title IX rights, which is just so rich. I mean, now you care about women equality, really? <laughs> I mean, right. Uh, Don Ennis, our managing editor, has a great piece up on the site right now, Outsports, explaining uh, this whole uh, edict from the Trump administration. Basically, it's a political move. The future of this transgender law in Connecticut will be decided in the courts but it's certainly a scare tactic, and when you threaten to withhold federal funding from a state, as the Education Department did, if Connecticut doesn't comply with its ruling, uh, that is scary. Uh, even though that's an empty threat, I mean, Congress controls the power of the budget, of course, but uh, power of the purse, excuse me, I mean, my political science terms mixed up, but still, like a quarter of funding from Connecticut uh, to Connecticut is federal funding, and to threaten to cut that off, I mean, I don't care how unattainable it is how unfeasible it is that's that's still that's still scary that is a scary scary threat and that's what it is a threat thankfully there are lots of brave people standing up from andrea yearwood to terry miller in connecticut to lindsey hecox in idaho who has decided to insert herself in the middle of the fight for trans rights in idaho she wrote a great first person essay for teen vogue a couple weeks ago and she was a guest on the trans sporter room I was uh, fortunate enough to sit in on that interview with uh, Don and Carly Webb, so I want to thank them for that. Uh, Lindsay is great, and it shows you the, the there's a human side of this story that just gets lost and lost and lost. And I would challenge anybody, anybody who you know does not think that trans uh, women should compete alongside cisgender women in high school sports and students' athletics, I would I'd love you to just listen to Lindsay Hecox and say, yeah, I want to deny that young girl the right to play a sport with her gender. I mean, like, just just listen. I mean, hard to believe that people who actually listen to the human stories with this could could still be against it, but nonetheless. Um, so, kind of a heavy open, but the good news is, for us, it is on the doorstep of Pride Month, and uh, it will certainly be a different Pride this year with every event being canceled, but I say still make the best of it. Still dress like you would dress for your Pride celebrations. Try to do something. That's my advice to you. Chris Johnson, again, covers the White House for the Washington Blade. He's coming up next on the Sports Kiki. That's a good way to kick off your Pride celebrations. Listening to Chris Johnson. It's a good interview. That's next. Thanks for tuning in. And welcome back to the show. On the phone lines now, we have Chris Johnson, who is the chief political and White House reporter 
for the Washington Blade. Very excited to have him on the program. He's also is a member of the White House Correspondents Association. Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, thanks so much for having me, Alex. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's great to speak with you. I've uh, followed your work for a while. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I especially enjoyed your article on Wednesday about Larry Kramer and his relationship with Dr. Fauci. Um, for those who don't know uh, the complicated and eventually deep friendship they developed, uh, explain that a little bit to uh, our audience. All right. Well, um, as I'm sure a lot of your uh, uh, listeners know, I mean, Larry Kramer was a giant in the uh, in the gay rights movement. Uh, gay rights pioneer at the height of the AIDS crisis. I mean, he was signing groups like ACT UP and Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York. And, you know, ACT UP was a grassroots organization that held dying protests uh, throughout the country to urge the government to develop drugs to combat HIV AIDS uh, more quickly and, and distribute them to uh, the thousands of uh, people, many of them gay men, who were uh, dying throughout the throughout the country and throughout the world as the height of the epidemic. So, and, you know, one of those targets was Dr. Fauci, who was, he's been head of, he's head of the uh, NIH now, and he was head of the NIH um, at that time. Uh, and so, the, like, uh, there was like, a, there was definitely some hostility or some antagonism between uh, right. Larry Kramer and, uh, and uh, Dr. Fauci, as he admitted in his interview with me, like, Larry Kramer saw him as the representative of the government that uh, was deemed uh, not to be moving quickly enough to combat HIV AIDS. And uh, Ronald Reagan was notorious at that time for of course. Uh, not having uh, publicly addressed AIDS uh, during his presidency. So even though it was, the epidemic was definitely raging at the time. Yeah. But no, it, you know, Fauci, uh, got to be really close with uh, Larry Kramer. I mean, it was a decades-long relationship. And uh, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci gave Larry Kramer a lot of credit for lighting the, lighting the fire to get the uh, protest going, to get the... Uh, you know, the uh, energy going to the demand for the government to, uh, to you know, to move quickly with the uh, with HIV drugs. And so uh, they got to be very close. And as upon Larry Kramer's passing yesterday at the age of 84, the uh, you know, gosh, Dr. was very cheerful about it. He was choked up about it. And he even got the news ahead of time by uh, from a fellow Ajax, Peter Staley, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, Larry Kramer had passed. Yeah, and, and Dr. Fauci even arranged uh, in the early 2000s for Larry Kramer to receive a life-altering, very rare surgery. So, I mean, it was it's a great story and a great piece. I encourage people to check it out. Um, so, just to get to your job, Chris, you are the chief political and White House reporter for the Washington Blade, along with the L.A. Blade and LGBT publication. Um, you're covering the White House on a daily basis. What do you view your job as in that briefing room and in Washington? Well, I mean, I'm, I work for an LGBT publication, so I'm very, everything that I'm, I do is geared towards an LGBTQ audience. So the people who I assume I'm addressing when I do my reporting, when I do ask my questions, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the uh, gay guys you see at your uh, local uh, gay bar, local gay club, it's drag queen, it's transgender people, it's the you know, leather daddies and all the letters of the LGBTQ acronym. So I definitely have a you know a specialty audience standing, a niche that uh, no one else does. We're the only LGBTQ publication in the White House press corps. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we're really proud to have that distinction. But I mean, at the same time, though, I take I, I am a journalist and a reporter in, in the White House press corps, and I am I 
I'm an objective journalist. I strive for objectivity. I take that role very seriously. Uh, I mean, I'm not here to. Uh, I, I'm not here. I, I don't want to withhold information from readers, but I think that might be important. Uh, I want to get to the bottom of things, but I'm trying to. I try to get present uh, uh, both sides as as uh, as appropriately and, and, and as fairly as possible. Um, I mean, I. I, I think that there's a, lot of, a big trend in media now to uh, tell people what they want to hear in order to get more clicks and more shares. And I really think that holding to objectivity in journalism is uh, an important value and one that I really stick to. Yeah, and but on that, you are an, an openly gay man working for an LGBT publication covering LGBT issues. How do you? How do you ensure that you're objective in your reporting? Is it even possible to be objective, purely, fully objective? I will confess, objectivity, purely objectivity, is an aspiration. Right. We have a human being putting all, everything together, and as one human being. I mean, it's, I mean, we, of course, we have some sort of we do have uh, some collaboration with other staffers, but um, it's it is an aspiration. You have to be recognized when you have. Uh, biases or uh, in your in your reporting and and root them out. It's it's, it's an effort and uh, it's just making sure that you know all voices are heard, including minority voices, and uh, that it, it, the reader has a clear sense of what's happening. I mean, after a reader reads something, there should be a sense of clarity in what's uh, happening with the reporting. It shouldn't uh, be uh, much sensationalism that. Uh, and let that more, that it obscures what is actually happening. So I think that um, it just takes a lot of like reevaluation of what you're saying, making sure that you're including, uh, making as clear a picture as possible, an accurate picture as possible for the reader. I mean, and you also, there is some degree of marketing for this news product. I mean, if you just can't like put, uh, bomb up the uh, words on the page and have everybody expect that everybody's going to pick up a media, you have to really make sure that you have a catchy headline, catchy, uh, you know, photograph, a catchy lead, something that's going to really draw the reader's attention story, but at the same time, uh, sticking with, uh, uh, you know, uh, objectivity, balance, uh, you know, make sure we have all the facts is, is really important. Yeah. And, and how do you, and how do you do that? You mentioned that you have a built-in LGBT audience. You have a niche audience, which is unique from other publications in the White House, you know, in the briefing room. But how do you make sure that your content is also digestible to a more broad general audience? How, how do you strike that balance? The that is, I mean, the key is to make sure that all my writing is for an LGBT audience. So I, there is probably right. some a degree of assumptions that I would make about the reader who is uh, consuming the the news product, and so sure. I probably wouldn't like a lot to define certain terms like what what is don't ask, don't tell, or right. or what is uh, you know the. Uh, what is it? What it means to be transgender, or things like that, that might be, that maybe like another publication might go into a thorough explanation on. So, um, I can't say that I would completely like ignore a mainstream audience for this, but my I, I'm my my I feel like my race my my role is to address an LGBT audience. So the mainstream right. audience, where they kind of pick up with the publication, uh, they would have to understand that there'd be a certain uh, certain knowledge and a certain perspective that the I would assume that the audience would have that you probably wouldn't find in a mainstream publication. Yeah. Um, how's your experience been covering the Trump White House for these last three years? Well, it's 
Uh, <laughs> I have to be careful. I think I have to be careful, first of all, what I say, because I do want to maintain my, uh, my position as an objective reporter. But I mean, a lot of the stuff you can like see from the outside, from the press conferences, um, you can see that President Trump is making declarations on, uh, like, for example, what he wants to do uh, with the coronavirus thing that, uh, like, his, he wants to, uh, he wants to have the utmost uh, authority on when states can reopen and then just kind of drop that. He does something about he might uh, 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 stop Congress from reconvening and then drop that. And then, right. uh, I mean, a lot of this, is, you, you can see on the outside that there's like sometimes bring well, one thing one day and then the next that's kind of forget about. It. And I think that, you know, it's safe to say that there's just a certain amount of, it is this administration, it, it, there's a, it seems to thrive off of the chaos. I mean, there's just like, there, there's like like multiple different messages and uh, and a way to not really a singular a post that that they stay with the entire time is is really evident and it's just something that's very characteristic of the Trump administration. So how do you sort out what you know? Because you're right. I mean, Trump, you know, a million times a day will tweet something that I guess under a normal presidency would be front page news. So obviously you don't want to spend your life chasing down Trump tweets and stuff like that. But then there's the other side of the equation where people say, well, if the president is, does have this unhinged Twitter feed and we don't cover things normally, then we're normalizing this behavior. It seems to be just such a, I mean, it's easy to pile on the White House press corps, but when you look at it like that, it, it seems to be a very tough job as well, differentiating what to give attention to versus what not, what to emphasize and what to not. Right. I know. And the, I mean, Trump is the president of the United States, so and he has the bully pulpit. So whatever he says is news. And if he wants to take the take us off down a a you know a, 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 down a track that like raises a lot of eyebrows, if he wants to raise tweet about conspiracy theories about uh, an intern uh, debunked conspiracy theory about an intern dying in Joe Scarborough's office, if he wants to tweet out uh, food comments, coarse uh, uh, comments about uh, about women. Uh, I mean, he does. This, I mean, there's just like you, there's an endless list of this stuff. I mean, like those things I mentioned, right. there aren't even like the, the top twenty of the most controversial things that he's tweeted. But he is the president, so it requires a lot of uh, that. You know, that definitely is worthy of, uh, of news attention. I mean, there is a lot of like criticism out there saying like, hey, by actually giving this more attention, by giving this fuel, by giving this ammo, what you're doing is just um, uh, as opposed to say, as opposed to sunlight being the best disinfectant, sunlight is actually being a uh, 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 is, is making uh, uh, these uh, these weeds grow, so to speak. So um, <laughs> that people like who have have uh, that have these like conspiracies, they have these views, are, are finding there uh, that they have friends in high places. And I mean that is a good argument to make, but to say that you can just ignore the president whenever he says something, I think is uh, not really paying attention to his role as president of the United States. Yeah, it's interesting. Like even, you know, one today, um, he retweeted uh, some account that tweeted the only good Democrat is a bad Democrat. And I look at that in two ways. I'm like, on one hand, if any other politician retweeted something like that, it would be biggest story in the country. They would have to have resign a may culpa something. But on the other hand, I'm like, it's just a retweet. And we've been through this for years and years with Trump. The vitriol is so much. It's just on a daily basis. You see this bout, you see this, this tug of war. It seems like, and I can say that you know Trump really is a way of dominating the media uh, discussion by saying so many different things that it's really hard to focus on one thing. And I think that that is part of his strategy that he keeps like he will 
tweet out a bunch of con uh, contradictory that, uh, things that, um, that many people think would be offensive, and then you can't really, it's, it's too hard to like point out to what, what, what one thing that's actually really uh, offensive to pin him down on because there's so much of it out there. I mean, if you think yeah. about, like, things, like for example, if, I, I, I mean, you're a little younger than I am, but if you think about, like, Mitt Romney being accused of being a flip-flopper, John Kerry being accused of being a flip-flopper, I mean, you don't, you could easily accuse Trump of doing the same thing, but it just oh. like, doesn't like, bounce right off of them because he just, like, admitted, like, he just, without a, uh, without uh, any, any scruples whatsoever, he just continually just does different things and flip-flops all over the place, and, and, uh, and, on, and even on, like, very insignificant matters. So, um, the, he has a way of capitalizing on uh, on confusion to kind of like distort the message to make things when he when he says controversial things it's a lot harder to uh, to pin him down on that one particular thing. Uh, on a regular basis, you now deal with Kaylee McEnany. You you there are regular press briefings being held again. Um, let me just ask you in general: Do the White House briefings you think have? any value at this point well in theory they would have value because they would have yeah. a government official who would be coming out to address the media which would be able to see by the public and this is supposed to be the public's window into the white house how is the uh white house going to present itself to the public on its policy and its agenda and in theory that if the public saw that this person who was like administering that it was addressing the uh you know answering these questions was being unhelpful being uh, not answering questions, being antagonistic, that the public would be uh, upset by that. And I think a lot of people in the public are. They're saying this and they're thinking that this is unacceptable. Um, at the same time, I just think that, so I, in, in that way, that you could kind of see that they have, they'd be valuable because they kind of show, like, what is the uh, uh, White House approach to the, the, uh, what, the White House approach to the press would be seen as the White House approach to the public. I just think that in this day and age, there's, there's, there's a weird layer now where people don't trust the press. And so, uh, they don't really see the um, press as kind of a gateway to, to what their perception of the government. Right. And they see it as some sort of third, as some sort of third thing. They, they, and um, and that's partly fueled by the fact that you know there's multiple different ways for the government to you know address people now. They have their Facebook and their Twitter. So um, the in theory, these briefings would have value, I and mean, then people will be seeing things like. What Kaylee McKinney she addresses the media, and she has a very almost an entirely antagonistic approach to the press. I mean, there's a briefing going on right now, and or uh, or eminently right now, and uh, I'm sure that like she would just be kind of like hostile reporters' questions, mocking them for what they're asking, diverting them to something else, but uh, like some sort of what aboutism when they ask a question about one thing, and, and yeah. what about how X Y Z, and then yeah. she's like you know saying uh, questions that reporters should be asking about. Right. Uh, she can one briefing that way, and reading headlines that, uh, of, a, of a CNN that she didn't like the other day in response to a question. So um, the, you have to wonder how professional that is. And if she's going to be that unprofessional, then why are we even like entertaining this? Um, this yeah. Yeah, this idea. I don't really know. Maybe time goes on, people are going to reassess this. I think for right now, like everyone in the press, like they, they are, uh, they want to keep things as they, as they were, as they, Seeing that the, the press briefings are going to be kind of a way for the public to get a glimpse of what's going on in the White House, and um, it, and, and you know, and the, and the media does want their TV time at the same time too. They want to have their sound bites. So yeah. there was kind of a, a, a mutualism here that uh, um, people might not want to talk about, but it's there.
Yeah, it, it seems like Kaylee McEnany's job is more to be a pundit than an informer. Like, she's up there to read, miss, you know, wrong headlines about COVID-19 for them to then replay on the Fox primetime shows. It really doesn't seem to be about giving information. Yeah, she's not there to answer reporters' questions. She's there to harass them or mock them or to, uh, to uh, I mean, it's to be hostile towards them. I mean, like, I, I that is her almost singular practice. There. I, I, I'm trying to think of a time that she's even actually been helpful in reporter, answering reporters' questions. <laughs> I mean, she basically, if she doesn't, like, know the answer, she says, why? If she, if she doesn't, if she doesn't wait, it's, it's basically her saying, I just know the answer to the question, or her, like, referring to the campaign, conveniently, passing the book to the campaign, or, you know, or, I, I can't imagine how much she's actually been, like, uh, in, like, you know, being helpful and engaging with the press. If you look to, like, what happened to, like, Josh Ernest in the last of the Obama administration, I mean, they, they thought that the role in engaging with the press, they took that very seriously. I mean, he would ask him a question and he would like talk about something the uh, administration was doing to address that particular turn of the question. And then, uh, I mean, he would be you know, forthcoming delivering information. So um, there was really a distinct difference. What was your experience like uh, working for working with uh, Sarah Sanders, who, you know, was antagonistic with the press as well, but seemed to have a little bit more of at least on the surface a, a I guess more tradition. I mean, I don't know. It was so antagonistic too. I guess just what was your experience with with Sarah Sanders, the predecessor? Sarah Sanders is, I mean, she's like my White House press secretary. Sanders, she has served the longest, I believe. Right. And she had probably she was actually and she was giving uh, uh giving press briefings. Um. She, I think she called on me like maybe like one or two times. Oh really? You have to understand it's a little bit different because now we have a because the White House briefing room is now changed considerably because of the coronavirus crisis and they're having limited seating. It's because that I am a member, I like uh, the association that I was able to get a a seat on a rotating basis uh, with the press secretary. So there's, there's like fewer reports for to call on. Like in the Sarah Sanders days, those rooms are packed every day, and so I would hardly ever get called on. But then again, I'd be competing with I'd be like standing in the aisle and competing with a bunch of other different reporters. So, um, uh, it's not exactly apples to apples in a certain way. Sarah also did not have the same background as Kaylee does. Kaylee is a um, uh, is has a Harvard law law has a Harvard law degree. She has got training in being you know crediting people and and and, uh, and uh, litigation. Uh, Sarah didn't really have the same training, and so I think that. She didn't have the same kind of teeth to her antagonism that uh, other reporters did. I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at the Sarah Sanders tapes, though, she was like not answering a lot of questions. Like, no. And uh, like, she was like, she, she was just, I don't really know. Um, she would say she would say things that ended up being proven false later on. Oh yeah. Um, okay. uh, a couple of instances, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. And at the same time, I have to say that like, behind the scenes, I think she was probably a little bit more helpful than you might think. I mean, more actually in her role when she was working for the deputy son Spicer, that she was actually quite helpful with me in answering my questions. And then when I would uh, I would email her, uh, you know, uh, uh, things later, I'd, when she was press secretary, I felt like they were able to handle a little bit better. Um, and so, I mean, Things were different between her and Kaylee in a number of ways. Yeah, it, it's, it's it seemed that way too, though, as you mentioned, lots lots of lies there as well, obviously. Um, I want to talk briefly about um, something that 
came up with you in the White House briefing room uh, last month. You and Caitlin Collins of CNN was assigned to switch seats with you, right? And you refused to do that. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of the atmosphere in the White House press room. Do you think in this era, reporters have have an have a duty to back each other up? The uh, I actually have to say I haven't really had. Um, I don't mean to make your podcast boring, but I have to like I, I've been kind of consistently having no comment beyond my pool sure. report on this incident. That's fine. Uh, no worries. I can, I can tell you, like, I, I just say, a matter of fact, what happened was I, I, I read my poor report and I can summarize it. It's just that uh, before the briefing began, a White House official came out and said that uh, I, I, the pooler who was me needed to trade seats in the front row with CNN. And I said that that's the jurisdiction of the association, not the White House. The association decides the seating assignments. And then the White House official said that uh, this is not an option and that uh, this is from Secret Service, or Secret Service was involved in this. Um, right. And uh, that was kind of, so they were stepping it up. For, so I just, in response, just said, uh, I have to wait for guidance from the association. And then, uh, then the, so the briefing, uh, the CNN and, and myself were in their respective assigned seats, and it proceeded. Um, to answer the question about whether you think that journalists have a duty to back sure. each other up, um, It's a weird kind of competitive cooperation with the with the press corps because after all we're all there trying to, we want to get the be the ones to get the story get the get the question get the scoop at the same time in order for us to have this done in a have have our access is through being united and I think that when uh, that I I I I, I have. It's important to, uh, that that's I think it's important. To, therefore, we have when you have rules set up between the White House and the association with how things advance. I, I really insist on sticking with those rules that we've agreed to, just so that we can have that kind of uh, uh, promise of, of access. And um, that's what I would stick with. Yeah, um, you had an exchange a couple weeks ago as well with Kaylee McEnany about her previous public uh, opposition to same-sex marriage. Um, you asked whether or not that jives with the White House and President Trump, who has stated his support for same-sex marriage, though, of course, a lot of his judicial nominations, if not all of them, would say something else. But on the record, he has uh, supported that. What was, um, after that happened, uh, you know, you faced some vitriol on social media. What was what was that whole experience like for you? Well, I mean, my boss were not bad on this. Kind of summarizing all the social media backlash, and there was quite a bit of it. I mean, this is all very public; you can see it online. Um, I don't think it's actually unique to me. I think basically any reporter who's there asking a question uh, gets you know, viciously attacked on social media, which is um, uh, this is it looks like it's, it's kind of customary. Um, uh, and I just kind of think that. Um, I think my boss put a, had a uh, an appropriate take on he said in the op-ed that uh, it kind of shows a lot of the col- uh, the colors of people who are um, uh, in the uh, who are, are on, 
who are you know making these attacks. I mean, some of them are like based on you know or um, on uh, me being gay. Most of it's based on you know being a uh, being, uh, being a reporter, and I, I don't think a lot of them even like knew what my background was. As a reporter for an LGBT news outlet, they just wanted to attack the person in the White House briefing room who was asking, who was deigned to ask a question of the White House press secretary. Um, and uh, I just kind of think that my boss kind of had everything in the op-ed. The Washington White House had an op-ed, a good summary of what happened. And, uh, yeah. The, uh, the, what that says about the, the people who are making the attack. Well, you mentioned that even asking a question, you're opening yourself up to harassment. Is it is that the experience? What is the how is the online cyber harassment? Uh, and how do, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you how do you cope I with say, it? Like I had not experienced it to that degree before mm-hmm. that time. I mean, like, and uh, and, that, and it's not just cyber harassment. I mean, like, there's also some like nasty articles written about my question in Red State. And, uh, and Breitbart. Um, I mean, just as like, I get, you have, there's a certain degree of like freedom there. Just as I have to ask a question, they can, people can say whatever they want to say. I think that they should be held accountable for uh, what they're saying. And if those are, you know, attacks based on, you know, uh, anti-gay attacks, and they should be uh, held to those judgment. One thing about me, social media is that it enables so much, uh, um, like uh, slander by anonymous an, an anonymous basis, that people can say whatever they want to say, and not have really any sort of uh, attribution. They can be as nasty as they want to, and uh, you know, the, at worst, they get their Twitter account shut down, and then uh, uh, then they wouldn't have to. Then I mean, there's no, no accountability for it. So, um, you just kind of have to. Uh, I, I just kind of have to weather it and keep going, and, and um, I'm probably gonna better turn the way very soon in the White House. Uh, uh, the news briefing, and we'll have to wait and see uh, if that returns, if the trail returns. Yeah. One thing I've always said is when I get attacked online and there's like an anti gay slur, I, I, it's easier for me to just dismiss it because I'm like, oh, that person's a homophobe. As vile as it is, I'm like, oh, well, I'm gonna, they're, they're, their opinion about my work doesn't matter anyway because it's homophobic. So as vile as it is to see, I can kind of brush it off a little easier. Um, Last question I wanted to ask you, Chris, is Pride Month, of course, is coming up this week, June 1st. Someone working for, as you mentioned, the only LGBT publication in the White House uh, Press Association. Um, what, what does Pride Month mean to you and what kind of coverage do you uh, want to give your readers? Well, um, we're very excited about Pride Month this year. We usually have a, like an annual Pride special issue, but we're doing four uh, separate issues for each, each week of Pride Month this week. Um, after including like one of them is going to be global pride next week is going to be uh you know uh celebrating your first pride and coming out um, so um we have a big lineup for that and my coverage is going to be more focused on like uh how pride is going to intersect with federal policy i just did a piece this week on because uh, usually what happened like federal workers would celebrate pride uh each year with these uh, celebratory uh, events at these departments um because of the coronavirus these events have been a lot of them have been canceled i have to say they've been kind of anemic during the Trump administration compared to what they were during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, so they were in lack of support already. It's like they can say pulled the plug on, on a lot of these. Uh, most notably, the Pentagon is not going to be hosting a Pentagon Pride event for the first time since Ernesto until repeal was certified in 2011. What Pride means for me is it is a time 
to take a part of you that a lot of that most people aren't going to understand and a lot that many people all have uh, prejudicial views towards and to celebrate celebrate the fact that you are a uh, as a person that you are a unique among other individuals and uh, being gay gives you one uh, way in which you are uh, different from others and a way to experience life that other people don't have and a way to find love that you don't have that other okay, a way to find love that other people don't have and to really embrace uh, the differences the uniqueness that makes you you and it's going to be a lot more of a challenge this month. Pride celebrations, as you know, have been canceled pretty much. So, right. uh, I mean, it's going to, you're going to have to be creative in our, finding our ways to do that. But it's definitely important to do that because uh, we get one month out of the year to uh, like kind of to celebrate that as much as, much as we as, 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 as the top of our lungs that uh, you know it's gay and it's great to be gay or it's great to be bi or great to be lesbian or great to be transgender or great to be queer. And um, because that makes us unique. And that is, yeah, you have to, we have to completely capitalize on it. We have to take advantage of that. It's as possible. Before I let you go, Chris, I have to ask, what a Pentagon Pride event, what does one wear? What's the dress code? Are you showing up in your rainbow onesie, your tank top, your harness? What's the, what's, what's the code there? Well, it's the Pentagons, and then people, and then they have to be LGBT service members, and they, of course they take, you know, the military pop and circumstance very seriously. So they'll be showing up in uniform, and they'd probably be, they'd be displaying the color, like the military flags, and, I mean, it's a very formal event. Like the military likes formality, so I mean, you wouldn't really see quite a bit of outrageousness like that. It's just kind of it was an opportunity for LGBT service members to be recognized for their, uh, you know, their contributions in defense of the nation. I mean, um, you might see like a pride flag or something like that right. being uh, uh, waved around, but it's definitely a very formal event. And and, and what were so so I was unaware. So every how many of these pride parties does every department of government have one or? It's it's kind of it varies from department to department. I mean, like, and like, like the Pentagon had like an like event because there's like an LGBT the LGBT affinity group for employees there called DOD Pride. It's a group for like LGBT service members and Defense yeah. Department civilian employees that kind of come together and they to have this kind of some solidarity. And they were able to organize like a Pride event within the department every June. And like a lot of these departments have it. Like in the State Department, it's Glyfa. Uh, and it's, there's, uh, Justice Department has DOJ Pride. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security had DHS Pride for a long time. That appears to be defunct now. Um, but the, I mean, the idea is like these groups, like every once a year, they have like, they're able to arrange with uh, like uh, the department, a kind of an event for them to get together. And it, it's like, I, say, a, call it a party isn't really appropriate. I mean, like they're basically, you come, it's like a formal event where you go there and you hear a speaker talk and then you sure. probably like, I have some catered food afterward. I mean, it's like kind of sure. like, a, like an, a formal office workplace thing that you might expect. So the person would, like they have the speaker, would know they'd be addressing like LGBT employees working in their respective department. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Chris Johnson, read his coverage, White House reporter for the Washington Blade. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Alex. Anytime. Okay, so thank you all for tuning in to another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast. We made it to episode number 17, and also another thank you to Chris Johnson of the Washington Blade. Enjoy the start of your Pride Month. Enjoy. We'll be back to talk to you.